Y'all are great. Hey, my name is Brady Sharp, um, and uh, uh, I am so glad to be with you, a friend of Providence Road, or at least Providence Road has been a friend to me and my family for a long time, and so I'm really glad to get to be with you today. Um, we love Providence Road and uh, her elders and leaders, and uh, uh, Pastor Jeremy's been a good friend of mine for the last five years, really thankful for him. And I just wanted to say before I get into anything else, I just hope you know what a gift it is that you have Pastor Jeremy and your elders here. Good, yeah. That, by the way, that was the appropriate response to that. That was, that was good. Yeah, no, it really is. We were talking last week just about where you guys are as a church and what you're walking through. And I was just, I was moved. I, was, I thought, man, how great to have pastors who will walk you through books like Ecclesiastes, which is not like, you, that's not like reading the morning paper kind of light stuff, and then let you experience the fullness of the depths of life in difficult passages um, in your life, and then walk you through what that looks like. So I've always been grateful for them, but I'm grateful for you that you get to experience that for them as well. And then one other quick note, I, I work with a nonprofit organization here in the state that helps catalyze Care Portal at churches all over the state. And so I did not expect to hear that story this morning and was so pumped and I'm going to go brag on your church this week uh, just for what you're doing here in your own community. I think it's amazing. So that's really, really great. I want to read a passage of scripture uh, with you today. And it's found in John chapter 11. And uh, we're going to read uh, actually the first, uh, it's a little bit lengthy. So I'm going to read it uh, because I want you to see the story today. And, uh, and so that will be your scripture reading for today out of John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed Jesus, uh, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. 
So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with him or with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, doesn't this sound familiar? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, uh, and he said where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. But some of them said, uh, some of them of the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, he who opened the eyes of the blind, also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to the Lord, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you have sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, and his hands, his face, uh, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I want us to look at this passage of Scripture, and I want us to see Jesus as king in sorrow and joy. There's so much in this passage, and it's a long one, so we're obviously not going to look at every little detail because there's so many angles. But I want us to see Jesus as a king in sorrow and in joy. Both of these things are present in deep measure in this passage of Scripture. 
there are pivotal points in all of our lives. If, if we had time, I could ask each of you, and, and it would be really incredible to hear your story of these deep, pivotal moments in your life. There's some that are held by all of us. Um, if you're over maybe, um, maybe four decades, three decades, there's one deep, pivotal moment in our culture that happened in 2001 in September that all of us hold together and realize this was a cultural pivot moment in our lives. For those of us younger, uh, for those younger than us and, and those of us even older, we also know that in, in 2020, there's a deeply held cultural pivotal moment in which so many things shift and we can look back and recognize there's just a, a pivotal moment in everything. And then each of us have our own um, private or personal pivotal moments where we've had deep realizations or things have happened in our life that have stoked certain things um, to, to, to bring us to an awareness and to cause us to see things in a new life, in a new light. For me, one of those pivotal moments happened just less than a year ago um, in the autumn of 2022. And um, uh, for those of you, there's some of you I know that have, have heard parts of, our, of my story before, but when we moved to Oklahoma in 2017 to, to be part of planting churches in southwest Oklahoma in Lawton, uh, we moved in July, and then in September, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so our whole first year in Oklahoma was a battle, it felt like, for life. And that was a pivotal moment, too, for sure. So I'm not overlooking that. But in, in autumn of last year, um, there's a deeply pivotal moment for me, and that is my wife had, had uh, called a friend of mine, former student, college student of ours, um, now friend, and he had come up with the kids, and they were going to stay a few days and just get to enjoy one another. Um, we were celebrating a little bit. My wife just is such a great celebrator of people and things like any good reason to hang a banner, to decorate the table and celebrate. I mean, that's, that's who she is. And I love that about her. We were celebrating the fact that after five years, I got my, my chemo port taken out and I was declared cured of cancer. And it was, it's definitely a celebratory moment. Well, we went out to dinner that night. Um, and we walked into this restaurant, and, and they have this big back room, and, and they slid the door open to this big back room. And in the room is about 75 people from multiple states who just erupt, like, woo I mean, big-time celebration. And I, I, I was just, you know, caught completely off guard, like, wow, how did you pull this off? She had gathered people from everywhere. And they were there to celebrate what God had done and the healing that had happened, um, and it was this really, really incredible moment in my life. But I, there was something else that happened in that moment that's hard for me to describe, except I'm going to do my best today because that's what I'm here to do is to help describe some of these things. But there's something that happened that as we were celebrating um, my port being out and chemo being over and being declared cured of cancer, there was something else that happened in that moment that shifted that I realized we're in a room celebrating um, the removal of what would have been a terminal disease, and yet there was something that was nagging at me. It was something that kind of uh, that that changed the hue of the moment from celebratory to also having this real sober moment to it. It was a pivotal moment in my way of thinking, and it was that moment that actually drew me back to this passage of scripture. And I've been living in this passage of scripture ever since. So I want to share with you a little bit about where that where why that is. And I believe that where you are as a church in walking through Ecclesiastes and seeing the realities of life, um, this is a helpful, hopefully a helpful moment for you in this as well. 
So I said, I want us to see Jesus as king over sorrow and joy. And I'll bring back in a minute to help you understand a little bit more of what happened in that pivotal moment for me. So Jesus is king. I want us to see first and foremost out of this passage of scripture that Jesus thinks and acts like a king. Jesus is a glorious king. Jesus, as king, does what is best. Okay, hear me on this. Jesus does what is best, and he does it like a king does it, and not like maybe what a warrior or a servant would do. Let me explain. Look back in the passage here. We've heard this story, how Jesus was called, your friend is sick, and Jesus' response to this request sounds maybe a little bit different than you might picture Jesus. When Jesus is called to come heal his friend, here's what he said in verse 4 of chapter 11. When Jesus heard this, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So whatever Jesus was doing here, he was doing, first and foremost, so that God would be glorified through it. Now, let me me tell you, part of what is necessary to understand Jesus as king is to understand that he has to primarily be about and for the glory of God, or else he's not the glorious king that he said that he he is. So everything that he does in this story and all of what we understand about God and in our own lives, we have to understand he's doing it that God himself might be glorified. He's a glorious king, and he does what is best. Also in verse 41 of this same passage of scripture in chapter 11 of John, he says here, the man who, uh, who had died came out, his hands and feet, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong passage of scripture, 41. Uh, he said this, um, so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his, head, his eye and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always heard me. Um, but I said this on account of the people standing here. Uh, he said, I, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That all of this is for the glory of God, and Jesus is king in this moment, in dealing with Lazarus and Lazarus's friends and so many other things. He is king, and he's doing king things. That's important to understand because when we think of Jesus, we might think that when Jesus' friend is sick and, and, and the people that Jesus loves telling Jesus, your friend whom you love is sick, we might think that Jesus would immediately engage in order to heal this friend who is sick. And yet that's not what Jesus did. In fact, Jesus said, I think we'll stay here. Instead of going to heal his friend, Jesus said, we're, we're actually going to stay a couple of days longer. Now, in our way of thinking, I shouldn't put that on you, in my way of thinking, when I first hear that, I don't think, well, that sounds pretty caring. Jesus, the one who could heal, is like, we could go, but we'll just stay here instead. So again, we have to hold tightly to the fact that Jesus is doing something that will bring glory to God because he's a glorious king and he's thinking and, and acting like a king. Jesus um, chooses to stay. Jesus waits, not just two days, but he waits so that they're there two days, so that by the time they travel to where Lazarus is, he's actually been dead for four days. So not only does he wait while he's sick, he waits until he knows for certain that Lazarus has died. Again, 
Maybe not the way we would have painted this picture. Maybe not the way that we would want to tell people this is who Jesus is. Maybe not the way that we would describe the character and the work and the thought process of Jesus. And here's why. Because we don't always think like King Jesus thinks. We think like we think. And this passage of scripture is reminding us Jesus thinks like a king because Jesus is a king. Not only does he wait until Lazarus is dead, but he puts in motion what's going to be best for his disciples, for the sisters of Lazarus, for the mourners, for the onlookers, for the doubters, for the critics, even for Lazarus, who, by the way, is sick and now by this time has already died. Jesus is thinking on a different level than probably you, definitely than me, think sometimes. But Jesus is king, and what Jesus does is best. And that's important to understand in a story like this, where we already know that by the time Jesus gets there, um, not only has Lazarus died, not only has Mary and Martha begun the mourning process, but people from nearby towns, which this was a, a cultural thing that... that um, Maybe more like something that you would see on the streets of Louisiana, that when there's a death, there's a parade, and there are, there are, are mourners, and sometimes there were even paid mourners who would come. Like mourning was a significant part of their culture, that when someone died, it, it was, uh, we think of like bringing all our friends together to have a party. And, and though we have funerals here, this was something that would be a great and grievous outpouring, a cultural moment of mourning. And all of this is in motion. Everybody that's there to mourn is in full swing. And when, when Jesus gets there, the funeral is in the middle of things that are happening. And he's waited until this time, and he's done so to set up just exactly what needs to be there. Because Jesus is a king. Second of all, not only is Jesus a glorious king who does what is best, I want you to see that Jesus is a caring king. Now, that may sound a little odd because I just told you he purposefully let his friend die. You know, and uh, I don't know, there might be physicians in the room, but physicians like sign a paper that they'll do everything in their power to see that, that, that the people that are under their care have all the care necessary for health and like they, they legally are bound to this. And we call Jesus the great physician. And so how can we transition from saying he's a good and glorious king to saying he's a, he's a gracious king when we know what's already happened here? Well, let's take a look at the text itself and see what it has to say. In verse 15 of John chapter 11, here's what it says about what's happening. And for your sakes, Jesus said, I'm glad that I was not there Again, that may not sound like the most caring statement, but listen to what he said after this. I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus set this up and, and, and lets these things happen so that as he's talking to his disciples, he's saying, I'm glad that it's too late because I want you to be able to see so that you will believe. And Jesus is allowing Lazarus to go through this and the mourners to go through this and the disciples who were clearly confused see Thomas's comments about, all right, well, let's go die with him. Clearly didn't get the whole picture here to say, I'm glad. Not only does it sound maybe to us like that's strange that he would let it happen, but he would say he's glad so that they would believe. 
Also, in verse 33, look at what happens when Jesus arrives and he sees the mourners, Mary and Martha, and he's confronted. In verse 33 of John 11, it says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, Martha, and the Jews, or Mary, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I think it's important to note that Jesus had already known what was taking place. He had already purposefully allowed this to happen. He knows what he's doing. And yet when he encounters his, the sister of Lazarus, who's mourning, and he sees the mourners, and he knows, he knows what's going to happen, he's still deeply moved. Because he's not a cold and calculating king. He's a caring king. And he's deeply moved by the heart of the mourners. Look at what happens in verse 35. There's one, in English, it's our shortest verse in the Bible. If you ever did like a Bible memory as a child, you're like, I know one. I know one verse in scripture. It's John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. This is also a curious thing for me. That Jesus not only knew what was going to happen, and then allow these things to happen with, with king thinking. But then he was also moved by them. And then he was moved to tears. He's weeping with them. Look at verse 38. Jesus, again, deeply moved when he came to the tomb. Again, deeply moved. Doesn't he know he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead? Doesn't he know what the plan is? Isn't he a glorious king? Yes. Why would he be so deeply moved? Because he's a caring king. Look in verse 42 of this passage of scripture. It says, I knew that you always hear me, Jesus talking to the Father, but I said this on the count of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. It was important that they believe Jesus. And so Jesus, caring for them, wants them to believe. And so he's, he's praying out loud things that don't have to be said out loud for anybody except for the people standing around so that they would know who he is, where he came from, and what he's about to do. He's a caring king. Look in verse 43 and 44. This is probably nothing more caring in this example than when he says, when he had said these things out loud, he cried with a loud voice. He called Lazarus out from the grave. And the man who had died, Lazarus, came out. His hands and feet are bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. And by the way, I wish there's like a whole other sermon about walking out of a grave covered in grave clothes and Jesus saying, get him off of him. That's a whole other sermon. You, you can preach that to yourself another time, okay? But Jesus clearly cares. You know, I, I am not the wisest person. I know that for sure. And, and I am learning so much about how Jesus works through his, through his word and, and specifically through this passage of scripture. Because when I come to this passage of scripture, I not only start by thinking, why would Jesus let him die? Because again, like if I had a friend who was sick and I had the power to heal him, I would want to make sure that he was healed right away. So I'm thinking like me and not Jesus. So I want you to hear me say, like, if I take off my right theology hat for a moment and I just tell you what Brady, the, the, the natural normal, normal, 
can't even say it. Natural, normal thinker would think. Let me tell you what I think. I'm really confused. I'm really confused because not only has he let him pass, but by the time Jesus gets there, people are gathered and there's a crowd and people know Jesus has the power to have done something. And so now he's got critics and he's got doubters and he's got people who are questioning him. And then, again, my normal thinking, and then he stops to cry. There's a part of me that's like, why are you wasting time? There's a dead man here, and people need to see you raise him from the dead. Why are you standing around crying? Now, thank God that he's gracious, because I think I just questioned the king of the universe in a really direct way. But I, 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 I want to be honest with you, that when I read this passage, that's what's normal to me. It's like, let's skip the waterworks and raise the guy from the dead. Let's get after it. But that's the way that a warrior would think. That's the way that a servant would think. That's not the way that a king thinks. Because a king is doing a whole lot more than just this one thing that's in front of them. And a king can stand in the middle of the tension of seeing his friend in the tomb and seeing the mourners and the doubters and the critics around him and being able to stand there waiting to see God glorified and not at all concerned about what everyone else is thinking except to lead them to the place he wants them to be. And that's what a caring king does. Well, he's not only um, a good king who does what's best, he's not only a caring king, he's king in our joys, and in our sorrows. I told you that there's a, that this pivotal moment, it was like something shifted in my mind as I stood there with all these friends and family who I was like, there's 75 people here, and, and, and I'm thinking like, I just want, I want to have an hour with each of you, you know, like I'm so thankful that you came, and I just feel so celebrated and relieved. There's something in this passage of Scripture that's always nagged at me. It's actually, it's not in the passage of Scripture. It's something that we're led to understand from this passage of Scripture. And that is, after verse 44, we don't hear a whole lot more about Lazarus. He shows up again, and then that's really all we know. There's something that's bugged me about this passage of Scripture, and that is, not bugged me, just, just tugged at my heart. And that is that you can imagine when, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the, the theatrical portrayals of this, of this story show just, just an eruption of celebration. I mean, and I don't know if that's what would have happened. I probably would have been standing there in stunned silence. You know, I, I don't know what your reaction would be. But then, but then what was mourning, like deep weeping and sorrow, would immediately have been like, wow, can you believe he's alive? And then, and then everybody would be telling everybody. I mean, it would be an unreal kind of celebration. It would be like whiplash from having gone from deep mourning to just elation. But there's a reality here that because we're not told, there's an assumption here that at some point in time down the road, weeks, days, months, years down the road, 
they're going to have this same funeral all over again. You know? Like, we're not told that, that Lazarus was, like, gloriously swooped up into heaven, which means he's going to go through human death all over again. And the mourners are going to mourn all over again. That wasn't maybe the twist you thought was coming there. But what happened is I stood before my friends and family celebrating and just feeling celebrated and loved was a realization that, that, that God allowed me to outlive a terminal disease. And at some point in time, those same people might be at my funeral. And I don't mean to just like, wow, okay, bring it way down for a minute. But to say that it's really important. It, it, what it did is it brought a filter into my way of thinking. And maybe not in the way you, I've led you to believe. It, not as in like a, uh, a, a depressed or, or dark thinking. But, but more, like, more like changing the color of the way I see things. One of my favorite things to do, we live near the, the wildlife refuge at, um, in Lawton in Medicine Park. By the way, if you haven't been there, come down. I'll, we'll, we'll tour you around. It's a beautiful place. And I'd love to go out and just take nature photos. I, I just am deeply moved by God's ingenious creation in this world of the beauty that's there. And I love to take photos. And one of the things that when I'm taking photos um, of nature that is both a struggle and, and an exciting challenge for me is to take a photo and then in a way, whatever it takes, a filter or adjustment to, to try to make that photo on, on something this size look like what I'm seeing out here, right? To, to adjust the colors because, you know, maybe it's in the, in the mornings when the sun comes up and everything's still nice and green out there and there's, and there's pops of color and the, and the grasses are deep green and you take a picture and it's like, ah, that's not at all the color that I'm seeing. And so then, then I work to like edit the photo to look like what I'm seeing with my eyes because I want to be able to capture what I see with my eyes. That's what that pivotal moment was for me, is to shade and to color and to filter my view of life in such a way, not that it's dark and depressing, but that the deep colors of life start to really pop out because I'm, I'm deeply aware that under the sun, that's probably a phrase you're used to if you've been in this passage of Ecclesiastes, that under the sun, where we live, not with, not with God in great eternality yet, but under the sun in broken world, there's always the tension of both sorrow and joy, and they're there together. And our tendency is maybe to dismiss one or to hold one higher than the other. And the beauty of, of Jesus as king in this story is not to dismiss one of those, but to actually bring the tension of those together in such a way that the celebration of the resurrection of Lazarus is both amazing, full of elation, and deeply aware of the fragility of his humanity. And without the joy of knowing that there's resurrection. Did you catch that in the middle of the story? That Jesus not only said, hey, I can raise Lazarus from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And because of that, there is joy under the sun. 
But that joy under the sun has to be held in proper tension with the realizations of the dark and deep sorrows of this world. And when they're held in proper tension together, what it does is it paints a beautiful picture with deep colors, not just dark colors. You know the expression like stop and smell the roses? I don't really love the smell of roses just for the record. But the sentiment is there, that it's not just about the fragrance of the rose, it's about the realization that that bud had to come to life, and at some point in time that bloom will wilt and fall off, and you catch the rose in the beauty of the moment and realize that it's held in the tension between its budding and its falling off, and something about the moment of the flourishing of the beauty of life makes us really, really aware of how deep the color of that is and how vast and how important this moment in life is because God himself in this story says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he's with them standing in the tension of the joy and the sorrow. And not only that, not only that, but I got to tell you, it's deeply important that both of those things are, are in our awareness for us because we'll miss the greatness of what we have here in this life under the sun with Jesus. And here's why. Because in Ecclesiastes 7, it says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. And the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go enjoy life. Or we, we need to enjoy life. We'll catch that in a minute. But if life is all about trying to avoid the hard, the heavy, and not facing the true realities, not dealing with the sorrows of life that are before us, not walking in the hurts and pains, not standing in the river of the, of the difficulties of life, and then just trying to, like, to like, uh, it, it whisk it away with entertainment or, or with substance or with whatever it may be, then... then the writer of Ecclesiastes would say it's foolish to think that you can, you can just write off the hard things in life because they are. And yet, if all life is is full of, of despair and darkness and depth, then we miss the beauty of the king who, who has given life. He says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he's also the creator of life and he's given it to us. And he says to Mary and Martha, like, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And so he's king over sorrow and joy. And both those things held together in tension cause us to stop and realize we need both the joy of life and the sorrow of life. And if we deny either one of them, then we've denied reality. They're both there. And we need them both. Well, what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, I just want to remind you that Jesus is a good king who does what's best, and he does king things. That means that Jesus does things that we don't think to do, and Jesus does them in a way that we wouldn't think to do them. And when he's doing the things that we wouldn't think to do, in a way that we wouldn't think to do them, he's doing what's best. Listen to what Isaiah says as he's prophesying in Isaiah 55. He says of the Lord, sorry guys, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, 
Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The Lord told us, my ways are higher. What does that mean for us? Well, that means that sometimes Jesus is doing things that we don't understand. And not just out there, but in here. There are circumstances in our life that we would change in a heartbeat because in the way we think and in what we want, we would say, let's get this fixed right away. And it may very well be that King Jesus is saying, I've got a better plan than you. My mentor in college used to say, God never does one thing at a time. And that's what we're thinking about well, I say we're, my wife is thinking about a hundred million things at one time. I think about one thing at a time. That's it. That's all I can manage in life. But we're thinking about the thing that's right in front of us. And God is thinking about the vastness of what he's doing in his earth right now, all the time. And we don't see the little sliver of it that is our life. We see it just, that's what's in front of us. And he says, I see the big picture He's the one adjusting the colors so that everything looks like it needs to. His ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are higher than ours, which means that there are sometimes that we have to stop and rest in the reality that we don't know, we can't see, and we have to stop and look at the one who claims to be the resurrection in life and say, you know better, and I'll trust you. And man, those are hard words to say sometimes. Not only that, Jesus cares for you. And it's so important to note that Jesus stopped to mourn with him. You know what the answer to that question I asked earlier? Why waste the time? That's the wrong hat. Why waste the time crying? You know what? He wasn't wasting time. Jesus set this up so that he could be with those who mourned to mourn with them. This is, this is a clear and present understanding of the fact that when you mourn, and you do, whether or not you choose to do it out loud or, you, or, or maybe it's your tendency to try to shove it down as deep as you can. When you have mourning, Jesus' heart is moved. Can you hear me on that? Like Jesus cares so deeply about what's going on in your heart that when you mourn, he's moved. So there's not a thing that you mourn that he doesn't mourn alongside with you. The heart of God is moved by his children. And it's important to note that because I told you, you know, one of the things that nags me about this passage of scripture is that they're going to go through it all again. A friend of mine said, I wonder how Lazarus lived after that. You think he lived a different life? I mean, that's kind of, you talk about pivotal moments. Mine was standing in a restaurant. His was being dead for four days. I don't know if he lived differently. We're not told. I don't know if he died differently. You know, maybe he died with a different kind of understanding of life. I, I don't know. It's interesting to think about. What I do know, though, is that as Jesus is working for this resurrection, he, he's also helping them understand that when they go to mourn this next time, they'll mourn differently. I know that. I don't know how Lazarus lived or died, but I know the mourners were going to mourn differently the next time. Because there's a different understanding when you've seen the king who cares and who walks with you in these things. And maybe when, when you hear me say the king cares, maybe you say, maybe you're like me and there's times in your life where you, you're like Mary or Martha. Did you hear 
Did you hear the way they confronted him? Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And since I don't know your stories, it very well may be that there are some of you in this room that you're like, today you're saying, but if you knew my story, you would know that there are moments where I would say, Jesus, if you had been here, Jesus, if only you had, if you wouldn't have allowed, you fill in the blank. Those are hard moments. And I'm, I'm mourn with you over those. But I want you to hear something really important that Jesus said in another place that I think speaks directly to this confrontation from Mary and Martha. And it's in John chapter 8. Excuse me, it's in Matthew chapter 8. We're in John. Matthew chapter 8. And it's in verse 5. It's a centurion. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. Jesus said, I'll come to your house. I'll heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes and to another, come. And he comes and to to my servants, do this. And he does this. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled to those who had followed him. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found this faith. Jesus was deeply moved by this centurion because he understood that it didn't matter what piece of dirt Jesus was standing on. If Jesus said the word, it'd get done. So when Mary and Martha say to Jesus, if only you had been here, let me tell you, it wouldn't have mattered if Jesus had stayed six months if he'd have been halfway across the world, if Jesus had said the word, Lazarus could have been healed at any time, whether he was in front of Martha and Mary or not. And, and whether or not Jesus is standing present with us today in physical form or not, which he's not, he at any time by his word could give the word and things change. Things get done. Whether, whether it looks like he's doing it now or not whether it seems like he cares or not, or whether you think he was present or not. And my guess is that for most of your stories, you think about what happened or what was taking place, and you wonder where was Jesus, and you forget to notice that he was there with you. Maybe not in the way that you wished he would have been there, but he was there with you. Because all he has to do is say the word, and things get done. What does this mean about sorrow and joy? There's an author Uh, Chip Dodd, uh, psychologist and author, who says that the gift of being glad, the word glad, the gift of being glad is sorrow mixed with joy. That's what I felt that day in the restaurant. I didn't feel depressed. I didn't feel feel, uh, somewhere else. I felt glad. I felt glad. Because here I am, in the joy of getting to celebrate with friends and family, thanking God for what he's done and deeply aware of the fragility of my own humanity. I felt glad. And that's what happens when we hold the sorrows of our life in the tension with the joys of our life, in the awareness that the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life is with us, is that we get to hold those and we get to hand them to him. And we get to, we get to say like the psalmist did in 51, the penitent, penitent psalm, 
as he's confessing before God, 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 restore to me the joy of your salvation. We get to ask him, God, bring joy into my soul. And also, like, help me with the color of realizing the fragility of the moment between, between the, the bud of life and the, and the wilting of the bloom that in this moment I get to be glad under the sun before my king who knows best, does best, cares for me. It means we get to say, like the psalmist in Psalm 23, I'll walk through any dark valley as long as you're with me. I am the resurrection of the life. And then, and then we know Jesus goes on to the cross and he dies as a substitute for the sins of man. And, and then scripture tells us that his death conquers the death that comes with sin. And then his resurrection now brings life to those who were dead. That's why he said in this passage, anyone who believes in me shall not die. He's not just talking about, about this suit of, of flesh. He's saying that you'll live forever, that death is conquered, and that life has come to life because Jesus has returned to life. This picture here of Lazarus coming to life was also about showing them what Jesus was going to do in his own power, be crucified, and then come back to life again, and then go to be with the Father, and then leave with us his spirit so that he's present with us even today, even though he's not present in the same way that he was in John chapter 11. In fact, it's better because his spirit is everywhere. And he's with you in all places that you go. And what it does, what this passage of scripture does for me, is it leaves me longing for the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life. Because you realize all of this story is hinged on and pivots on that verse of scripture. I am the resurrection and the life. Not only the story of Lazarus' resurrection, but the story of ours. And then here's one last thing for you in this that I want you to see in this passage of Scripture. I mentioned this a moment ago, but I think it's really important to point out. And that is Jesus lets everybody on site get a word. Martha and Mary confront him. The mourners, some of them are like, look, he loves him. And some of them are like, I mean, if he can heal the blind, he could have healed this guy. Which, by the way, I'm like, isn't resurrecting someone from the dead more important than that? But that's okay. There's the critics and the doubters and the disciples who are so confused and say random things. Everybody gets a word except one person. Do you know who that is? Lazarus. He never says a word in this passage of scripture. Because sometimes the things we go through are, are solely for God to use in other areas. I'm sure God used it in Lazarus' life. Don't get me wrong. But this story points out how vast God's use of, of the things that happen to us that are not for us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, if we are being troubled, it's so that you have comfort. 
in our moments of difficulty, when we seek the resurrection and the life, we're comforted by him. And part of us being comforted by him is that others might be comforted. As we wrote, our, uh, as my wife mostly documented our cancer journey, we, we've heard over and over again about people who were comforted. And it wasn't because we were brave and strong. It was because our comfort came from the resurrection and the life. So I don't know where you find yourself today. But when I read this passage of scripture, it leaves me longing for resurrection finality. Not just the resurrection of Lazarus. That's like, even if those critics were right and Jesus would have gone ahead and healed Lazarus, you know what? He still would have died. He still would have died. It leaves me longing for a resurrection that's not just temporal, that's not just in the moment, that's not just healing from cancer and from ports and from what other ailments that you've experienced, but, but getting to be in a place that's not under the sun anymore, but over the sun and getting to, to bask in the beauty of the goodness of the king who cares for us and loves us in a place where, the, where there is only joy because the sorrow is gone. It leaves me longing for resurrection finality. And since I don't have it, it leaves me wanting to be glad that I have the one who gives it. And I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know if you walked in full of sorrows and lacking joy, or if you walked in full of mirth trying to avoid the sorrows in your life, but I'm here to tell you Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and he stands here today as willing and able and ready to meet you in those places, and maybe he won't change your circumstances right now, and maybe he won't change your circumstances ever, but he can change your heart and he can be with you as you walk through it. And maybe you walked in this place being a doubter and a critic and a confronter of Jesus. I've already confessed to you that that's my natural disposition. And you need to be aware of that Jesus has even allowed the things in your own life so that you would believe and see, that you would turn to him, that you would run to him and not run away from him, that you would be drawn into the goodness of a king who's wiser whose plans are higher, and who cares for you. And if you've never confessed Jesus as your Savior today, what a great day in the middle of, a, of, a, of sometimes a, a, a surprisingly dark passage of Scripture to be reminded of the light and the life of Jesus who, who then went to the cross on behalf of your sins, conquering sin and death once and for all so that you could stand in freedom and be like one of these people who Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Be with me forever, not under the sun, but above the sun. Then today is the day for that. Hey, could you bow with me? Here in just a moment, we're going to um, have communion. We're going to break bread. We're going to uh, drink juice as representative of Jesus' body that's broken and his blood spilled. Because we're invited to partake with him. Will you take a moment 
and just reflect on your own life, that there are probably places in your life, in your business, whatever it is that you do, in your uh, vocation, in your parenting, what, that, that you know how to immediately do them. You could do things in your sleep. But maybe you have a really hard time putting your finger on what's going on in your own soul. Would you take a moment and just ask the king, the wise and good and caring king over your sorrows and your joy to reveal it to you? Will you take a moment and just reflect on your own perspective? On your own view of how you've responded to what's happened in your life? As the worship team prayed earlier, that maybe you need to pray, God, help my unbelief. Maybe you need to cry like David did, restore the joy of my salvation. Maybe in the moment you, you just need to stop running and embrace the difficulty in your own heart. Do you know that the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering? There's no shame in it. It's part of this life. And then will you stop and just ask him by his spirit to remind you that in the joys and in the sorrows, he's present with you and he's carrying out what Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. We want to be a people who give off a fragrance, not of faulty, fake realities, but, but a fragrance of people who embrace our sorrows and live in the joy and look like people who are glad under the sun. We ask him to help you be a glad person, not a fake person, not a, not a flighty person, not a depressed person, a great a glad person. And as these things come to the surface, I know your pastors here would love to walk with you through those things, help you navigate this world and its realities. And then could we stop for a moment and, and if there's sin that needs to be confessed, just confess it before him. Prepare your heart to partake. If you're here and you've never confessed Jesus as Savior before, as the resurrection and the life, then today's the day to do it. And we welcome you to partake in just a moment with um, the taking of the bread and the juice as a representation of how you're, for the first time, are, are tasting the goodness of God through Jesus. And then I know the pastors here would want to walk with you through those next journeys, steps. And if you're here and you're a believer, you're going you're gonna to see the body of Jesus broken and the blood spilled, and you're going to be reminded that everything that you walked through, he's faced, and that's why he can be our high priest, because he's a wise king who's walked the road with us. And we're going to get to partake in his suffering and in his joy. 
So prep your heart, confess your sins, and with gladness receive the deep love of God with an understanding of the fragility under the sun.